0: We read from the Holy Scriptures this morning from the Epistle to the Philippians, a portion of chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we'll read the first 18 verses of this chapter. Our text this morning is found in verse 5. We hear the Word of God in the letter to the Philippians chapter 2. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. Thus far, we read from God's infallibly inspired word. Call your attention to our text in verse 5, Philippians 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Beloved congregation, in our Lord Jesus Christ, already in the opening chapter, the apostle has expressed his great love and his strong attachment for the congregation at Philippi, which shares with him the same grace of Christ and fellowship in the gospel. And this was also his motivation for writing them in order that their love might abound yet more and more in knowledge and spiritual discernment. That's verse 9 of the opening chapter. Even as his joy is in Christ and for him To live is Christ, even so he desires that the church of Jesus Christ shall share in that joy of Christ, living out of him, but also living unto him. The Apostle Paul is compelled to emphasize this because he realizes that although the congregation at Philippi still stands strong in the faith of Christ, There are very real dangers. Already envying, jealousies, bitterness, party strife are making their appearance, which, if allowed to develop unchecked, can only result in spiritual harm, damage, and ruin in the church. They must be warned against this. And since these dangers are Always present as long as the church remains in this sinful world and consists of sinful members. This warning applies to the church until Christ returns. It applies to us. And so the Apostle Paul begins this second chapter with the emphatic and deeply touching appeal. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. He pleads with us that we would be of the same mind, motivated by the same love, having the same end in view, striving for the same things. He warns against doing anything for selfish and carnal reasons or Motivated by sinful pride, he urges that each may seek the welfare of the others and so the good of the church of Christ. He appeals to the fact that we possess the grace of Christ, as he emphasizes in that repeated if The point is clear. Since Christ dwells in you by his Spirit, since his love is the motivating principle in your lives, and since you share that love mutually in deep affection and concern for one another, be ye like-minded of one mind in the Spirit. Or, very simply and right to the point, as we have it in the words of our text, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. May God use this word unto our spiritual unity and well-being as congregation. We consider our text under the theme the mind of Christ in us. We notice first of all the meaning Secondly, the possibility, and finally, the significance. It's very deliberately and with good purpose that the apostle uses the expression here the mind of Christ. And the idea of the word mind in our text can best be defined as the disposition of the soul of man. Our mind, as Scripture speaks of it, is not simply the same as our intellect, our thinking. Our intellect involves really only that, our thinking, while the mind involves our will, as well as our intellect. Our mind determines our aims and ambitions, our plans and purposes, our seeking and striving. It is the disposition of the soul which controls the channel in which we think and will and speak and act. In a word, it gives direction to our whole conscious life. And therefore, if the mind is good, our life and walk will be good. But if our mind is evil, our life and walk are bound to be evil. And so the Apostle Paul can say to us that the same mind must be in us which was also in Christ Jesus. That is, we must be minded even as Christ was minded. And so immediately our attention is focused on the mind of Christ. Notice that both the personal name, Jesus, and the official title, Christ, are mentioned here in our text. He is Jesus, the promised Savior. As his name designates, he is Jehovah Salvation, the revelation of the God of our salvation who has come to us in the person of the Son to save us from our sins. And his title, which designates his unique office, is the Christ, for he is the anointed of God. He is God's office bearer, the great servant who shows forth the glory of God's name according to God's eternal purpose. And in that capacity of servant of Jehovah, he is the head of the church, He is the firstborn among many brethren, even the firstborn of all creation. And therefore, he serves in that threefold capacity of prophet, priest, and king for the sake of the church before the face of God. He is Christ Jesus. And as Christ Jesus, he had a very definite mind. During all the course of his earthly life and ministry, and it is especially and particularly to his earthly ministry that the apostle is referring as is clear from the following context. Christ had one disposition of heart and intellect, one mind which determined all his motives and desires, his plans and purposes, his thoughts, words, and deeds. It gave a single direction to all of his life, as long as he was among us. As a child, as he took up his public ministry, as he spoke and taught, as he performed miracles, even as he suffered all his life long, and especially upon the cross, even as he laid down his life, He was always governed by that one mind. And that's so evident in all of Christ's life and was so essential to his public ministry that our text makes special mention of it here. For as was the case with Christ, so it must be with us also by the grace of God. But what precisely then is Christ That mind of Christ. It's obvious from the verses that follow our text that the mind of Christ was his deep awareness of being the servant of God and of the humility that was essential to his position as servant. In this Tremendously significant passage. The Spirit points out to us that Jesus was always aware of his calling to be the Christ, the office-bearer of God. He never lost sight of that. He was determined that he should always maintain that calling in deepest humility, come what may. And that was truly what Governed, controlled all of his conscious life and walk as long as he was here upon the earth. As we read in verses 6 through 8, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Notice, Christ took upon him the form of a servant. And the idea is not that he merely adopted the outward appearance of a servant by the way he dressed or acted, but rather that he actually became a servant. His very form and essence were that of a servant. Christ did that at his birth already, as this passage points out. He was made in the likeness of men. He took our flesh and blood from the Virgin Mary. He came into the world as son of man, born out of Adam in the line of the covenant. He was like us in all the weakness of sinful flesh with but one thing excluded, namely he had no sin. He not only assumed our human nature, but he was also, we read, found in the fashion of a man all his life. When he lay in the manger as a baby, when he clung to his mother in utter dependence, and he grew up as a boy of that day, and he was hungry and ate and got thirsty and drank, grew weary and rested, he knew pain and sorrow, he experienced that this life is nothing but a continual death, all of this, yet without sin. Remember that he did all this as God's servant, Christ Jesus, sent of God to enter into our flesh, to become like unto us in order that he might bear the burden of God's wrath against sin in perfect obedience in order to save us and all whom the Father had given him from their sins obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. For him, the way of obedience was the way of the cross, and he walked that deep way without faltering. He gave himself as a lamb to the slaughter, bent his back to the smiters, gave his cheeks to those who plucked off the hair, bore insult and mockery, descended, as it were, down, 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 the ladder of suffering to its lowest rung in the bottom of hell, always bearing in obedient submission the wrath of God until he had borne it away. In his deep humility, he was always the obedient servant. That mind was in him. And notice, too, this is the mystery, that he did this even while he was very God. It's true, of course, that only as the very Son of God could he bear the burden of eternal wrath against our sins and bear it away. But the point of our text is that all the time as he humbled himself as the great servant of God, he was God himself existed in the very form of God. He possessed all the divine attributes of infinite glory. He was, even when he was in the flesh, the sovereign God. And how easy it would have been for him, from a natural point of view, to exert his sovereign power to his own personal advantage. And yet, he never did. He was the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, who bore the likeness of the Father and was the radiation of the Father's glory. And yet, that glory remained hidden behind the humility of the faithful servant. And understand that it was exactly for this reason that God highly exalted him to the position of power and honor in the heavens. As the apostle puts it so beautifully in verses 9 through 11, wherefore, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, but at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and That every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The glory that Jesus now possesses in heaven is the reward of God on his finished work in the flesh. And the glory that he possesses forever and even shares with us in the new creation is still the reward on his perfect obedience in deepest humiliation. The praise will be unto God forever. But two things stand out in this connection. On the one hand, that Christ never rebelled, was never disobedient. Never claimed to himself that which did not rightly belong to him. That's the idea of the expression here in the context. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. We could more literally translate that expression as he did not deem the equality with God a thing to be grasped or stolen. Bear in mind, he is the servant of God, called to devote himself to God with his whole being. And yet, he is God himself. How easily, humanly speaking, he could have claimed the power and the glory of God as his own to be used to his own advantage. Yet, he was the faithful servant. Who never as much as contemplated doing a thing like that. The very thought of perpetrating such a robbery was repugnant to him. And yet he certainly had been tempted to do that very thing many times. As you children know, even at the beginning of his ministry, when Jesus was fasting in the wilderness, There's the devil urging him to take advantage of his divine power by changing those stones into bread. Why should he, the Son of God, suffer hunger? And then, high up on the pinnacle of the temple, The devil whispered the evil suggestion that he could gain the attention and recognition of the people by casting himself down before them. After all, he could command the angels to come to his rescue, for had not the psalmist spoken of that very thing? And finally, the deceiver came with the horrific proposition that Jesus could attain all the kingdoms of the world by bending the knee to God's adversary. But in each case, Jesus flatly refused, answering the evil one with the word of God. Later, the Jews offered to make him their earthly king. And again, he preferred to bring their hostility upon his own head, rather than that he should exalt himself Never once did he forget that he was servant. And so he bore the reproach of men. Became a stranger to his brethren. Was an offense unto his mother's sons. Only because he would never show himself equal with God. His great glory would remain hidden for a time. On the other hand, because that mind was in him. He made himself of no reputation. The expression literally means that he emptied himself. Emptied himself. For God's sake, he put off all power and refused the praises of men. He maintained that lowly position of servant in deepest humility in all that he did perhaps the clearest demonstration of that humility was given to his disciples on that evening in the upper room they celebrated the last supper and jesus girded himself with a towel and went about on his hands and knees washing their feet and that seemed so entirely improper to peter that With an offended voice he asked, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And the necessity of this act was pointed out by Christ himself when he answered, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. It all made such a a lasting impression upon Peter that years later, he was directed by the Spirit when he wrote to the churches, Be ye clothed with humility. Clothed with the slave's girdle of humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And as an example to us, as well as to fulfill his calling before God, Christ became a most humble servant in God's house. For God's sake, he allowed himself to be taken by wicked men and falsely accused and unjustly condemned and punished with the shameful and accursed death of the cross, gave himself unto death until he became, as it were, public enemy number one, the worst of the criminals, and outcast of God and of men. Always he maintained, I come to do thy will, O God. In the volume of the book it is written concerning me. That is the mind of Christ, the humble and faithful servant of God. That's what our text is talking about when it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Even as Christ was always aware of his position as servant in God's house, so we should be. Even as Christ wore that garb of humility befitting his office, so should we be girded about with true humility. And even as he exercised that humility in all that he did, so must we, the mind of Christ, must also be in us. But how is that possible? According to the commonly accepted interpretation of this passage, the apostle really does nothing more than hold up Christ before us as a wonderful example for us to follow. We must make the mind of Christ our own so that we are motivated in our lives, even as he was. We must exercise humility over against God and over against one another, even as Christ did, which which implies that humility is just a natural gift which everyone possesses, To one degree or another, if he will only bring it into practice. So then it remains up to us to imitate Christ in our daily walk of life. Nonetheless, the teaching of Scripture and the idea of our text is the very opposite. And the Apostle Paul proceeds from the basic assumption that no man, woman or child, is gifted with humility by nature, but that we are all proud and selfish and covetous. When in the verses following our text, the apostle points out that Christ never considered equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's talking about The chief sin of which we all make ourselves guilty. By nature, man craves nothing more than equality with God. Our motivating sin is always that we would be as God. We want to be independent. We want to do as we please. That's what the apostle obviously wants to bring to our attention when he uses that expression. And let us learn from history's light. We mustn't forget that the devil himself made himself guilty of that sin already at the dawn of history. The very first sin committed was the attempt to become equal with God. The devil was himself servant of God in the exalted position of a chief of the angels perhaps the highest of all and yet he was not satisfied with that lofty position he became proud and his pride brought him to rebellion and he reached out for the power and honor that belonged solely to the living God he wanted to rob God of his glory by claiming that glory for himself with the result and he would be cast from heaven with all the angels that joined him in his rebellion. Entering paradise, Satan instilled in Eve's soul that same vain dream of becoming like God. He assured her that it would not hurt her to eat of that forbidden tree, no matter what God had said about it. In fact, if only she would do some independent thinking on her own, she'd realize that the very name of the tree suggested that it would be to her advantage to take and eat of it. For as the devil wants her to believe, God knew that in the day she would eat of the tree, she would become as God, knowing good and evil. As a result, Adam and Eve, who were created in the image of God as friend servants, rebelled against God with the sinful ambition to become like Him. They considered equality with God a thing to be stolen. And the consequence of this fall is that all of us are conceived and born in sin, even the sin of proud rebellion. Man has become a thief before God. He claims to himself God's gifts and all of God's creation. He acts as if his life, his health, his strength, his possessions, his talents and abilities are all his own to do with them as he pleases. He considers his own selfish interests the only thing worth striving for in all the world, me, myself, and I. My own selfish ends, craving after riches, power, honor of men. He uses God's creation to sin, subjecting all to his own evil purposes, claiming everything as if it were his very own, to do with as he pleases. He would give account to no one for all his actions, but to himself. In a word, his mind is the mind of Satan. In proud rebellion against the living God, who alone is God, he would try to be God's equal, Again, a mere glance at history confirms it. Think of Cain. He chose his own sacrifice. God better be happy with some of the fruit of the ground. That's what he would do for God. And after he was cast out from the presence of God, he made himself a city in bold defiance of the living God. Think of mighty Nimrod and his followers. Proceeded to build the Tower of Babel. Why? To make a name for themselves. Think of wicked King Nebuchadnezzar, even after he had been duly warned of God, how he boasted that he himself had built this great Babylonian empire. Think of King Herod. In the time of the early church, how he accepted the praise, even the worship of people as if he were God. It's the wicked ambition of all who would worship idols, all who would corrupt the truth of Scripture with human philosophy, those who seek the treasures and pleasures of sin, the fame and praise of men, all of which will finally culminate in the man of sin the antichrist who scripture says will sit upon the throne and be worshiped by men as if he were god man would be as god and therefore god's curse rests upon him the fallen sinner has lost the right to be servant in god's house he has no right to the mind of christ And he is utterly incapable of exercising it. He is proud and selfish. He hates God and he hates the neighbor. Reveals that in all his selfish ways. A mere example would never be sufficient to change the heart and will and thought of people to accept the mind of Christ. That example only arouses the hatred And the opposition that causes them to crucify the Christ daily. But, beloved, remember, Paul is speaking to those who know the grace of Jesus Christ. As he stated in the opening chapter, he's confident. That they share that grace with him in the fellowship of the gospel, the good news of Christ. And the point of view of our text is exactly that Christ took on the form of a servant to deliver us from our sinful pride. He has merited for us the right to be restored in the image of God even in the likeness of the image of Christ, in order that we may be his servants. And he has sent his Spirit into our hearts to deliver us from sin and death, in order that we henceforth should not live unto ourselves, but unto him who died for us and rose again. We are given a rightful place in God's covenant fellowship, we are made sincerely willing and ready to serve God in the office of believer, prophets, priests, kings, in Christ. And that applies to every true member of the church of Jesus Christ. As Paul expresses it so beautifully in Ephesians Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. All of which should make us very humble. We confess together that We are not worthy of a place in God's church. We are not fit for the calling and position to which we are called. It's only God's amazing grace that has called each of us, young and old, to our place and calling in his church. Even as we seek to fulfill our calling we realize that it will be accomplished in weakness and that our best efforts will be polluted with sin and that we are in need of a daily confession of our sin daily forgiveness from God as well as a daily bearing with one another in all of our weaknesses we must humbly, Admit that God is not dependent upon us in any way and that we can give him nothing as far as we ourselves are concerned. We only stand in the way, as it were, with all of our imperfections. The wonder of grace is that this cannot interfere with the Lord's work and purpose. But he who called us is also able to accomplish his work through us. Yea, his strength is accomplished through our weakness so that weakest means fulfill his will. And then we humbly acknowledge, as we do, At the beginning of each worship service, our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, our needs are supplied. So it is that the apostle can also admonish us, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus Christ can be an example for us only because the spirit of Christ dwells within us his humility is the gift of god to us since his love has been shed abroad in our hearts we love god only because he first loved us We love one another only because we love God, and we can exercise that love in humility before God and before each other only because that love of God abounds within us. Therefore, we must all heed this warning against our own selfish pride in humility must bow before the Word of God, must subject all things to the rule and authority of the Scriptures and our confessions, must take that seriously, for we are all inclined by nature to promote ourselves, our own vain opinions and philosophies, so may we live more and more in the consciousness that we are but servants. Servants of God, underservants of Jesus Christ. James has admonished us in his epistle that we should not be many masters or teachers knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. We must not in pride assume the position that we know it all, that all wisdom rests with us. Yes, one may have more abilities, be far more gifted in some respects than another, but be not filled with pride or with envy, jealousy. Let each make proper use of the gifts he or she has received. But what does any of us have that we have not received? As Jesus warns, let no man call thee rabbi, for one is thy master, even Christ, and ye are brethren. It's necessary for us to bear that in mind. We are always only his disciples sitting, as it were, at the feet of Jesus to be taught by him. It applies to our relationships with others, with each other. must be willing to assume the servant's garb and to bend down to wash each other's feet, must serve one another for the good of Christ's church, must be able to forgive one another even as God in Christ has forgiven us. And on the other hand, we must be willing also to have our feet washed. We must desire to be forgiven by one another even as we seek forgiveness from above. Expressed positively, must ever live out of the grace of Christ. We recognize His authority, His alone, sit at His feet as His disciples. We deem it a privilege to be clothed with that same servant's garb that made Him pleasing to God in order that we may also be accepted in God's sight As we are in Christ, we look to him for strength. We trust in his guidance in every circumstance of life. Having his word as a lamp unto our feet, a light upon our path. We're seeking to serve his purpose unto the glory of our God. And we're called to do that in the unity of the Spirit even as we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, even so we have one calling, one ambition, one goal, that together, as many voices in one choir, harmonizing perfectly, bringing forth a melodious song of praise, we might together serve our God in the world of unbelief, would emphasize things like teamwork, cooperation. We emphasize the power of Christ working in each of us according to the eternal sovereign purpose of our God. Again, that's precisely the emphasis in the opening verses of this chapter. Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, having being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Understand, beloved, that this all begins right at home. Having the mind of Christ Jesus means that as husbands, even as the head of our homes, we know ourselves as servants, humble servants, as we love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. As wives, we humbly strive to submit ourselves unto our husbands, even as the church strives to humbly obey Christ. As parents, we then would train up our children in the fear of the Lord. As children and young people, we would honor the authority of our parents and teachers, all in authority over us, obeying them for God's sake. And in the midst of the church, Having the mind which was also in Christ means that when one of us stumbles, falls into sin, we are there in the love of Christ to help, to call to repentance, to kneel together at the cross. We visit one another in our sicknesses and encourage one another in all our trials and troubles. We comfort one another in our sorrows and Instruct and guide each other in the way of godliness. We seek the eternal welfare of each other as members of the body of Christ. We give of our very selves in the service of one another. In a word, be ye clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Grace to the humble. It's our incentive, too, according to the implication of our text, for we have the example of Christ himself, the very Son of God, yet he took on him the form of a servant, deeply humbled himself, faithfully walked the way of obedience to the Father, even when it involved that accursed death of the cross, refused to depart from that way of obedience, even when the way of escape from death, the way of earthly gain was offered. He did it for our sakes, in obedience to God. The more reason why we should be willing and strive earnestly to crucify the flesh, walk that way of obedience, when for us to live is Christ, and to die is gain, or in addition, we have the grace of Christ in us. We not only may serve God and one another, but we are also made willing and able. Christ dwells in us. He works his work through us. And finally, we have the incentive of that crown of life that awaits us. Even as Christ has gone into glory, we share that glory with him. Even as Christ was rewarded with a name above every name, his work in us is rewarded that we shall also receive our own name from the Father. And we shall live forever with the saints to the praise of his glory. For there every tongue shall praise him, each of us showing forth that praise in perfect unison and harmony with all the saints, confessing together in word and deed that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Most merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank thee for thy word we pray, apply it unto our hearts and lives by thy spirit that more and more we may have the mind of Christ clothed in the garb of a servant, living in true humility before thee and before each other. We fall far short. Cast far from us that foolish pride, we pray. Remember us in thy mercy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.